0: Welcome to the Scarlet Tears podcast, where we talk about our favorite show, Miss Scarlet and the Duke. Welcome everybody to the Scarlet Tears podcast! Yay! Woo! Today we are talking about um, Victorian true crime, Victorian crime. Um, it's an interesting one. We are very excited because we have a guest today. We have the guest, Richard James, who both acts and writes. He is, we will say, it's not a spoiler, he is in season two of Miss Scarlet and the Duke. But he also writes um, Victorian crime novels. And so we are going to talk about his books. We're going to talk about his um, writing process, what he researches for the books what he writes other than the books he's a very prolific man he does so much um richard has been an actor for about 30 years with credits in tv film and stage and audio productions he graduated the bristol old vic theater in 1992 on tv he played regular and reoccurring roles in such children's series as the misty show sir gadabout Am I High, and My Parents Are Aliens. Other TV shows include Miss Scarlet and the Duke, our favorite, Doctor's Life of Riley, and Filth, The Mary Whitehouse Story. His movie credits can boast of appearances with Burt Reynolds and a bunch of amateurs, opposite Helena Bonham Carter in Great Expectations, and he also was in The Wind in the Willows with the Mighty Python team. He can also be seen in other, other films such as The Wolfman and Penelope. Also, Richard is a stage actor. On stage, he has toured the country in adaptations of some of David Walliam's most famous children's books, including the Olivier-nominated Gangsta Granny and the arena tour of Grandpa's Great Escape. Other than acting on stage and in film, Richard is also a very prolific voice actor. He has provided voices for various Doctor Who audio adventures from Big Finish Productions. He also has played parts in First Action Bureau, Tearhawks, and Planet of Bones for Anderson Entertainment, as well as voicing commercials and providing additional dialogue recording for films and TV. So that's his acting. Wow. Woo! Okay.
1: <laughs> Thanks, Hello. You made me sound very, very busy.
2: <laughs> well, not
0: only acting, you are also a very celebrated author with the Bowman of the Yard series, which are a series of Victorian crime fiction novels and short stories following the detective inspector George Bowman of Scotland Yard throughout the year of eighteen ninety-two. And as well as writing these books, you have also written about 30 plays of varying lakes, such as The Ghosts of Halfway House, The Death of Sherlock Holmes, and Charlotte Holmes, which is a play for children. They are all published by Lazy Bee scripts and have been performed the world over from America, New Zealand, and they're often frequently winning awards in competitions and festivals
1: mm. wow me sound even busier.
0: <laughs> so welcome for joining us i don't know how you've made the time with all of that that
1: you do yeah i was really I've excited time. yeah excited. i managed to yes. squeeze you in
0: <laughs> squeezing us in you've squeezed us in between all that work how have you how do you do it
1: how do I do it? Well, I suppose <laughs> yep. I just do what I do, don't I? You could ask anybody how they do things. and uh, We just do what we do, don't we?
0: I guess. I mean, I'm out of breath reading all of that. How are you not out of breath doing all of that? I mean,
1: <laughs> well, it's it's over a long period of time, of course. I suppose the acting, you know, that's, as you said, an almost 30 year career. So all those credits you read out there uh, took place over the, the best part of three decades. Uh, As a writer, I think I've been writing probably 10, 15 years, certainly as a playwright, and the novels uh, more recently over the last sort of three or four years.
0: Well, it's really amazing your breadth of work. We were going over, you know, to kind of introduce ourselves to your, you know, what you've done, and Mm. we were just in awe of what you've done. And (laughs) I wouldn't say we're intimidated,
1: no don't be don't be be,
0: (laughs) we were just like wow
1: (laughs) well of course and it and it that my career seems to have reached a pinnacle uh with the first episode in the second series of uh of of your favorite program
2: well
0: (laughs) it can only go up
1: from here no
0: (laughs) it can only go down no 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 No, no, no. see no, no, no. Well, thank you for joining us. Um, Richard, we are so excited to have you. Thank you.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: Welcome to Team Scarlet.
1: Thank you very much.
2: It's, it's a pleasure to talk to our first, uh, our first cast member or crew member from season two. Mm. Obviously, no spoilers. We, we cannot ask you anything about season two. Mm-hmm. But did you enjoy your time in Belgrade?
1: I suppose I can tell you that, can't I? That isn't a secret, how much I enjoyed myself. I had a great time in Belgrade. It was really interesting because, uh, for me, it was my first job after the various lockdowns and COVID that we've had the world over, but here in the UK. So it was the first opportunity, really, to do some work, certainly the first opportunity to fly abroad, which was very exciting after being locked up for a year and a half. And it was sort of 35, 40-degree heat um so which I love I'm a I'm a summer person so to get out into a beautiful city and uh, walk around the streets in punishing heat was exactly what I what I wanted and also a pleasure to work with Steve Hughes the director who I've known for many years
0: oh wow yeah,
1: yeah. um who I've auditioned for in the past but have never got the part finally he found a part that was perfect for me <laughs> uh, and the Ooh. planets aligned uh and so we, we met in Belgrade to uh, do some very exciting work yeah oh. it's great fun
2: 45 degree heat in Victorian getup, that, that's yes. punishing.
1: Yes. It was punishing. Uh, and of course, you know, we were wearing masks and so on when we weren't filming because of uh, uh, the pandemic. So that, that really didn't help at all. Uh, but of course, the men kind of, we get away with it because we can take our jackets off and just walk about in our shirts and, uh, and our, uh, our waistcoats. But of course, the women in the cast, they're all done up in their corsets and their bustles and they have to stay in it. I mean, I think it's far worse for them.
3: Coming back to the beginning of your career as an actor, Amanda just said that uh, you've been an actor for almost 30 years. What was your path to becoming an actor? And was there anything like an aha moment where you thought, oh, yes, that's that's what I want to do for the rest of my life?
1: Well, I was the kind of child that everyone else kept telling should be an actor as I grew up. Everyone always, you know, you should be on the stage. You're so funny. I was the class clown, really. I was the comedian. I never took anything seriously. I was always the first one to do a funny impression of one of the teachers or to tell a joke. Uh, But I didn't really take it seriously until I was about 17 or 18 years old and I did a couple of school plays, which I really enjoyed. And at the same time, I was starting to fall in love with going to the theatre and watching, uh, in particular, Shakespeare being performed and starting to feel that I might want to be a part of that world. And at the same time, I was reading books about how... How to become an actor and how TV shows were made and how theatre productions were put on. And so it all started to feel much more real to me. When I grew up, I had no sort of role model really to look at. Uh, I had no, there was no acting blood in the family, as it were. And I grew up in quite a remote uh, sort of countryside village. So watching TV and so on when I grew up, it all felt very remote and, and a world that I would never be part of. But in my sort of mid to late teens, I started to realize that. There were things such as drama schools where you could go and train. And after that, you might get an agent. And if you got an agent, you might get auditions. And if you've got auditions, you might get jobs. So suddenly, step by step, it suddenly seemed to be more attainable. So where I'd had all my life, people sort of saying to me, well, you should be an actor. At about 17, 18 years old, I started to think, yeah, maybe I should. Maybe I could do this. Maybe this is possible. It's not just a pipe dream. So there wasn't a, an aha moment, as you say, where, where everything clicked. But there was a, a sort of a series of steps where it started to make more and more sense that this was the life that I was going to lead.
3: What was your parents' reaction when you told them, I want to be an actor?
1: <laughs> uh, it was completely outside their frame of reference, really. I know they were very pleased for me, but they didn't really understand what it meant and what sort of life it would entail. Uh my dad came to see, uh, I think, my first professional theatre job. Um, and I remember taking the bow at the end with the rest of the cast and seeing him applauding me in the audience. And that meant something, meant something, rather, because I knew that even though he didn't understand what I was doing and why I was doing it, I think at that point he appreciated that this was what I wanted to do and that actually, you know, it, 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 there could be a living there if I was lucky. If I was and- lucky. <laughs>
2: And, and obviously, you know, writing, you clearly have a talent for that with the amount of scripts and plays and books that you've written. Is that sort of like a natural progression from, from acting or is that something that you also had an interest in? Kind of what, is, was it, what was it that inspired you to start writing?
1: I feel it's a natural progression. From being an actor to, to writing, many actors don't feel that. I have lots of actor friends who wouldn't know where to start or, or have no interest in writing. But for me, it sort of uh, it exercises the same muscles in many ways, the same creative muscles uh, as acting. Um, you've got the ability to get inside more than one character, which is which is uh, a nice thing, rather than when you're acting one particular role. I think the inspiration came out of the many many hours of unemployment that you're mm-hmm. bound to get as an actor and you start to think well okay what can i do in these hours what what do i do i can't just kick back and wait for the next job because that might be months away so i i think i started quite early on just writing things uh that probably i knew would never see the light of day but i knew i had to practice you know my the technique i suppose the craft of writing and then over the years i sort of then branched into writing plays very broad sort of comedies most of them which seems perfect for amateur groups and uh, community theatre groups around the world that seem to love putting them on and so i found a market there so that's what i write to really um and i very often see uh you know if there's a production near enough i'll, I'll go and see it where i am here which is great uh and then latterly um i sort of had always wanted to write a, a novel and then that novel became a series of novels uh and then some more and then some short stories and um here we are.
0: So if you had to choose between acting and writing, which one would you
1: choose to do for the rest of your life? Oh, for the rest of my life. Uh, the rest I, I, of your life. Yeah, it, it's acting always because writing is a very solitary pursuit. I do enjoy it on on the whole, although it does have its frustrations, but it's a very solitary pursuit. It's just you and your keyboard, whereas acting is a much more collaborative affair. Obviously, you've got the cast and the director and uh, if you're on set, there's the crew as well that, that bring it to life. Uh, so I think I, I'm always an actor first and, dare I say it, a writer second.
0: Mm-hmm. So you would say Richard James, colon, actor, comma, writer.
1: Well, yes. I mean, it says actor on my passport. So uh, oh, I think that, okay. that's what I am, definitely.
0: OK. So you were talking about the muscles and the skills that are very similar for acting and writing. Can you talk about more about those skills that you use for both acting and writing and what is different for
1: both? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I suppose as an actor over 30 years, you know, I've seen a lot of scripts in my time uh some of which i've ended up working on and a lot of which i haven't um but uh you know in the old days before email i remember they used to come through the letterbox with a with a great thump in a big brown envelope and that was always very exciting so i've always uh you know uh, i've got used to seeing um screenplays and uh, and scripts um so it seemed uh when i came to write my own plays it seemed quite a natural progression really i knew i knew how a script should go i knew the um not the rules of writing, but I knew that you had to grab the audience's attention, and there had to be beats throughout the piece. Uh, you know, it couldn't just be one long slab of action. You had to grow and and die. There had to be crescendos, peaks and troughs, and so on. Um, so I knew that that had to happen in a play as much as it does in a TV show uh, or film. And then when I came to write novels, uh, again, it's, I knew that the same thing had to happen. When you sit down and write a book, what keeps you turning? The next page is being left on a cliffhanger uh, at the end of a chapter, certainly, but also within chapters. At the end of paragraphs, there's got to be something that makes you want to read on uh, a phrase or a character looks at another character in a certain way or there's a clue or a body is found, whatever it might be. There's got to be something that, that drives you on. So I always feel if I'm excited to write to the next chapter, then hopefully the reader will be excited to read it. As, a, as a, the differences, I suppose, between acting and, and writing, um, I suppose as an actor, I'm not in control of my career. So I just audition for the parts that my agent sends me. And if I'm lucky, I'll get one of them. But even then, when I get the part, I'm not really in charge of how that part looks at the end of the day, because I've got to talk to my director. and he'll, He might have very different ideas about how the character might be played. And then the editor gets their hands on it if it's a TV show, and they might cut it to pieces so that the scene that you thought you were doing ends up looking completely different. Whereas a writer, I'm in complete control. I'm sort of God, really. I can, will <laughs> people I can snuff them out like a candle. Uh, uh, I can bring them back. It could all be a dream. It's entirely up to me. And I quite like that element of control, which I don't have as an actor.
3: That's really interesting. Yeah. You have a very wide range of um things that you write. You are a playwright, you are a novelist, you write for children and for adults, you write comedies, and you also write really dark and gritty mystery novels. So there's really wide variety. And uh, I can imagine that it takes uh, a very different set of techniques or skills to write each of them. Do you have uh, a favourite or do you just like to have this kind of um, variety in your writing?
1: Yeah, I love variety. Variety is key, isn't it? I love variety as an actor. I love it as an audience member as well. If I go and see a play, I I don't want it to be the same play that I saw last week or the same genre or by the same writer. I want to see something new. And certainly as a writer, uh, I love variety. I'm very lucky, really, in that I find myself writing in my two favourite genres in the main, um, historical fiction. Uh, And science fiction as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So i write anything from, you know, sort of 19th century London to uh, the 25th century on a faraway planet somewhere. And I suppose I like them because they're so far removed from my own everyday life. For me as a writer, that's real escapism, Mm -hmm. to put yourself in another character in another time period, uh, whether that be, you know, 100 years ago or 5,000 years in the future. I really enjoy that.
3: I think that's something that... um... Rachel New also said about uh, writing um, historical fiction and, and writing *Miss Scarlet* mm. because it's it's so remote from her own life. So yes. it's, 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 she I think she actually called it escapism as well.
1: Yeah, it's so, so true. I mean, yeah. the thing about historical fiction, of course, is that you have to be quite careful not to tread on too many historical toes. So, uh, for example, in one of my Bowman of the Yard books, uh, uh, I couldn't kill Queen Victoria. That couldn't happen. (laughs) Because we know that she she wasn't assassinated. We know that. But I could perhaps blow up um, an underwater subway on the River Thames. Now, that may or may not have happened. We don't know. But somehow we can get away with that because we can imagine that might have happened. Whereas we know that Queen Victoria survived until the end of her reign.
3: Yeah, I would have been very upset if you killed her, because <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm I'm from Coburg, so I'm from her ah, husband's birthplace. Of course you
1: are. Yes, that's <laughs> right. Yeah. Interesting.
2: When you start kind of writing, how do you decide what, what period or genre you're going to write with?
1: Hmm.
2: Is it just where do you start?
1: Well, with the Bowman books, it started because uh, I'm a fan of Sherlock Holmes, frankly, and I'm a fan of uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote the Sherlock Holmes stories. And uh, actually, the, the the idea for the Bowman books started a few years ago uh, when I was reading some of the Sherlock Holmes short stories, and I was looking at the uh, the detectives and the sort of the, the the more minor characters in the stories, thinking, we all know about Sherlock Holmes going off to you know solve this latest problem of some missing jewel from some aristocrat's safe. But I wonder about him, Uh, Inspector Gregson. He sounds interesting. He's a Scotland Yarder. I wonder what his life is like when Holmes isn't around doing all these interesting cases. I bet his life is quite gritty and quite dirty and quite disturbing. And that's what first drew me into that sort of world of, of Scotland Yard in the 19th century, late 19th century. And of course, we all grew up with tales of of jack the ripper and so on and i just find that time very evocative and on top of that as an actor i love dressing up so i love i love wearing (laughs) frock coats and cravats and waistcoats i can imagine myself in those sort of clothes and it it was very easy for me to put myself in victorian london as a writer
3: so would you say that uh, sir arthur conan doyle is your favorite author or did he well you said he inspired you for your uh, novels but um Or do you have another favourite author that you would say inspired you?
1: It's difficult, isn't it? Because there are so many amazing authors. and I think it would be unfair to single any of them out, really. But I have to say, I do have a very battered copy of the complete Sherlock Holmes, which uh, I take with me practically everywhere. I was on tour around the UK in a a couple of theatre jobs for about three and a half, four years uh, before uh, before COVID. And I took that book with me everywhere. It's like a constant companion because I can always sort of dip in when you're on the train or whatever. But I also love... um, I don't know if you know C.J. Sampson, who wrote the Shard Lake series that are sort of, um, I think they're kind of 13th century. They're usually mysteries. Edward Marston, who wrote the Railway Detective series. Again, that's Victorian. Uh, but also Alice Sebold, who wrote um, The Lovely mm-hmm. Bones and uh, so on. And uh, I'm reading or I'm about to start reading The Essex, Essex Serpent by uh, by Sarah Perry at the moment. So I've got a wide a wide range, but I, I suppose I do tend to head to to historical fiction. It doesn't have to be a mystery or a murder. But I, I, I do tend to head towards, uh, as, a, as a reader, to historical fiction.
0: Historical fiction is like my favorite genre ever, mm. and yeah, I tend to gravitate towards
1: mm. anything
0: really historical fiction.
1: Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, because it it takes you out of your own time and place, doesn't it? Yeah, Which exactly. It's a comfort
2: sometimes. Yeah. So, so we've kind of touched on on Bowman of the Yard. Do, do you want to explain a bit more about what those books are all about?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, Well, there are four novels, all featuring Detective Inspector George Bowman, and they're all set, as you mentioned before, I think, in the year 1892. In fact, they're set in the different seasons. So it opens in the winter, uh, New Year's Day on 1892, and then the next book is in the spring, and then the summer, and then the autumn. And essentially, we follow George Bowman as he's released in the first novel from a lunatic asylum following the death of his wife, for which it seems he blames himself. And as those stories continue over that year throughout the four novels, we learn exactly what happened and why he blames himself. But we also chart his, well, his downfall really, his spiraling out of control mentally um, as he solves the specific cases from each novel. So there are two stories in each book, really. Uh, the story of the mystery and then the story of George Bowman and where he is in his, uh, in his journey throughout the year. And in between those, there are some short stories as well. So actually, if you were to buy the novels, and I think there are eight short stories, you would then have 12 stories in all. So that's one for each month of the year 1892.
2: Nice. (laughs) And, and Head in the Ice is the first one, isn't it? That's, that's where it
1: right. kind of starts. That's it, Head in the Ice, that's right. So that's uh, following the discovery of, yes, you guessed it, the Head in the Ice of, of the <laughs> uh, And then we move into the Devil in the Dock, which all takes place around London docks uh, near uh, Tower Bridge and so on. Uh, and then he goes into the countryside for the body in the trees and uh, has to solve a murder in a quiet, sleepy uh, English village. And then back into London, for the foggy autumn streets in the uh, the Phantom in the Fog, the final the final novel.
2: And um, so, what kind of? I mean, you've touched on it, but the Victorian era and and a, a detective of Scotland Yard is is that kind of thing that really drew you and inspired you? Because it's quite a gritty time, and it's definitely how you you kind of describe it when you've when you've written.
1: Yeah, yes, that's right. I think I wanted to produce something soaked in period detail, so. It wasn't enough for my character to walk into a room. I wanted to I wanted to smell the wood of the door. I wanted to be able to run my finger on the windowsill and see the dust on my finger. I wanted to see the stains of blood on the wooden the, the floorboards beneath my feet. I wanted to hear the rattling carriages outside the window. And I wanted to bring that all to life and make it almost, I know reading is an immersive experience, but a truly immersive and almost cinematic experience for the reader. Uh, and having... That particular period at my disposal was really interesting because it's full of amazing characters, larger than life characters, um, but also some dreadful things happened. And you have this um, this great wealth juxtaposed with great poverty. And I think wherever you have that, you have crime Uh, and wherever there's crime, there's going to be a detective. And I'd always wanted to be a detective growing up. In fact, I, I kind of regret being an actor because I think I should have studied criminology <laughs> mm-hmm. and been a detective <laughs> inspector. Because uh, I, I love, I love sifting that idea of sifting through clues to to get to the truth. I find that quite attractive.
0: I'm a true crime junkie. That's my second love. Ah. Fiction, is my first one. True yeah. crime is my second one. So I'm right yeah. there with you. I'll be yeah. your BFF.
1: Yeah, so you, <laughs> you binge on all those Netflix uh, true crime dramas oh, oh, like yeah. I do. You. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah.
3: Do you see any similarities between Miss Scarlet and the Duke, our favorite show, and your Bowman of the Yard series? And <laughs> why should I, as a Scarlet here, read them?
1: Ah, right. <laughs> That's interesting. Well, it's up to you, of course. <laughs> uh, any, any similarities? I mean, I felt uh, from what I saw, I remember, I only saw the, 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 the one script that I, that I worked on from see, season two. But uh, it, it feels lighter in tone, uh, which is lovely. I mean, it's a lovely, bubbly series. It seems to me, and the great two uh, two leads as well are great fun. Uh, so it felt it felt sort of lighter in tone than my, than my Bowman books, which um, are very often quite dark and uh, quite visceral. And uh, why should you read them as a as a Scarleteer? Well, I think if you're a Scarleteer and you love the world that Rachel New has created so vividly, I think well here it is perhaps. Uh, in, in more depth, can I say, I think as a, a, as a writer of books, you're you're obliged, allowed and encouraged to go into even greater depth that uh, as a TV screenwriter, you just don't have time for. Uh, you know, a, a TV script is all about moving on to the next scene as quickly as possible to keep the action going and to keep the viewer enthralled. Whereas perhaps as a writer, you have time sometimes to stop and look around and describe a, a building or a or a tree or a particular character. So, I suppose if you love or if you like uh, Miss Scarlet of the Duke, you're going to love Bowman of the Yard.
3: Thank you. I already bought the books. <laughs> <So great. laughs>
1: Thank you very much.
0: <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> so, what kind of research did you do before you settled on Victorian England for your series? You said that you're a history, historical junkie, mm. but what kind of research?
1: Did you do to pinpoint the 1892 as, mm. yeah. That's interesting. I, point. Yeah. Uh, re- research these days is actually really easy uh, because we have the internet. I mean, it's it's so mm-hmm. unbelievably easy. There's, um, there's a particular website that I've really made great use of, which is a map website, uh, which shows you an aerial view of London, a satellite view of London now, but there's a little toggle switch. And you can toggle between... London now, and London from the 1890s. So you can see the streets that are still there, that were there, you know, 130, 140 years ago. Yeah. Uh, And you can even pinpoint sometimes specific buildings. So couple that with the fact that I only live half an hour outside of London. So it was very, very easy for me to hop on a train and, uh, and go and visit the places I was writing about. So... I mean, I was quite happy to bend the facts sometimes to suit the, the story. I don't think we should be hidebound to, to historical fact. You know, if, if I saw a building that, uh, that I didn't like the look of, I would, in my mind, demolish it and, and build another one because I thought they might be more appropriate, you know. Uh, but sometimes it was useful to, st- to stand o- on a street and think, ah, what would they see from here? Oh, that corner's further away than I imagined. So that means mm. it would take longer for the carriage to come round and get to this point. So somehow I need to set this action a bit further up the street, which might mean that he's got to arrive, you know, so it answered, uh, threw up lots of more questions and answered them as well. So as to why it's set in 1892, my series, that's really because I wanted to get out of the shadow uh, of Jack the Ripper, 1888, and those terrible murders in in the East End of London. Uh, They cast such a long, dreadful shadow and... I didn't want that to sort of encroach upon my books in some way. I wanted to be far enough away from them that it wasn't odd that people weren't mentioning it. Because if you say any book or series in Victorian London in the late 1880s, uh, you're going to mention Jack the Ripper. And I wanted to get away from that.
3: That's a really good answer. Hmm. yeah and I th- yeah. I th- again i think that's what rachel said rachel knew said when right. that that she said uh the series a bit before the jack the ripper ah, murders to get away yeah. from them as well
1: yeah that's right so they that, really cast a long shadow and they yeah. were so dreadful and so terrible that i didn't i didn't even want to broach that whole subject
3: yeah so we have a lot of um fan fiction writers in the group as well and i'm mm. sure they're listening like Very carefully about all the tips you are giving. About you have to give us the address of that website with the aerial view. Mm. Um, (laughs) I'm sure they will be interested in it. But also um, about what kind of thought process you have or you go through when you start each individual book.
1: Mm. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Um, I'm afraid to say. uh, Certainly, for three of the books, I didn't know how they were going to end. Now that. Often fills a lot of people with horror, and they think, "Well, how can you write a book if you don't know where it's going?" But it's quite common. What I tend to do is, I know certain events that are going to have to happen at, at some point. You know, a character gets injured here, or a set piece. It might be, "Ah, oh, let's have a séance here. That would be great." Uh, or, "Oh yes, I've got to have that um, uh, that meeting on the bridge. That's got to happen there at some point." So I sort of have um, like waypoints mapped out, so I I know where I'm heading from sort of chapter to chapter. However, in that, you've got to be prepared for things to change. I mean, as bizarre as it may sound, a character might suddenly say something that you had never expected they would say, and it might turn everything on its head. And that's really quite bizarre when that happens. And it's quite thrilling to to just go with it and follow what the character wants to do, what they want to say and where they want to go. And sort of three-quarters of the way through, you might start to get an idea of, ah, I think I know who did this. And I think it was him or her. And then of course you've got to go back and make it add up make sure that it all makes sense, that all the clues are in the right place. So there's a little bit of editing to be done afterwards. The only book of the four that I really had quite strongly mapped out in my head was the final one, uh, The Phantom in the Fog, because it wraps up lots of sort of little loose ends that have been trailed throughout the previous three books and I knew it was important to tie them all up in a sort of a satisfying way.
2: Did you know that there would be four? Did you do as four like a really good number for you?
1: Yeah, I, it, that came about because I wrote the first one uh, really as an exercise for myself. And I sort of enjoyed it. And I was really pleased with myself that I'd managed to finish a, a novel. That was just extraordinary. And I sent it off to various agents, most of whom ignored me, which is the way of things. Uh, a couple of people got back and said thanks but no thanks but one in particular got back and said it's not for me but here are some notes and he gave me some really excellent notes which meant I was able to go back to that first book and add the whole backstory of Bowman coming out of the lunatic asylum and the story of his wife and what might have happened there and then suddenly I thought there is a series in this I was also uh, talking with another writer called Adam Croft and I asked him for a bit of advice and he said, one book is never enough. Mm -hmm. Don't just write one, because particularly if you're writing something like historical fiction, people love a series. So that's when I thought, OK, well, maybe I can write three or four. Well, actually, four might be fun. That'd be nice because I could do one in each different season of the same year. Mm -hmm. So it came about quite slowly, really. Uh, But certainly by the time I was, you know, on on the way to once i thought of the second book I then knew that there were going to be four and I was sort of thinking ahead a little bit about where it might end up.
2: And how long did it take like from start to finish to kind of like get to this end process?
1: Yeah um, the first book took a long long time because like I say I was writing for myself and it actually started life as a TV script that I wrote again for myself and then I started to novelise it and then I put it away and then I went out on tour for a few years and thought that was the ideal opportunity to finally Get to grips with this book and write it i mean actually that first book took from its first conception to to the finished novel probably about 15 years oh, wow. wow! now that doesn't mean to say i was sitting down every day and writing for 15 <laughs> years it just meant it came and went and i put it away and forgot about it and then it came out again and i had another go but once i was sort of on that treadmill i tried to write uh a thousand words a day which from my point of view is quite doable really uh, it, that's probably about three hours four hours maybe uh, depending how you feel, um, so it you know it 's not too in a busy life if you are busy, you can probably still find two or three hours to write a thousand words a day so you know a thousand words a day means in three months you 've written a novel, uh, and that 's you know sort of ninety thousand words so that 's pretty much what I did for the the remaining books and the short stories. I sort of wrote them fairly quickly, yeah, sort of every wow. three or four months there was a finished book Wow mm. wow mm.
0: so in your research to look up for the books did you come across any crazy or unbelievable true crimes and what is your favorite (laughs) victorian true crime
1: Uh, right yeah i did come across a few uh i didn't use many of them i don't think certainly hmm, i'm trying to think there are in each novel there's obviously the central murder mystery but then very often around that there are other crimes that are going on as well and I seem to remember there was one about um, fraud in a bank that I used in, in the fourth novel. But there were many stories that I just felt were too dark, even for me, uh, to use. Uh, there was a, I mean, we all know the story of Sweeney Todd, of course, the demon barber mm-hmm. of Fleet Street, mm-hmm. who chopped up his, uh, his customers and made them into pies. Oh. Well, there was a Kate Webster in 1879, I think it was, who uh, was fired as, from her post as a servant. And uh, So, to get her revenge, she killed her mistress with an axe, she sliced her up into little pieces and put her in a large pot. and She burnt the bones and the meat, but she kept the fat and sold it as best dripping oh, <laughs> which in the u k here is a kind of a lardy, fatty residue that uh, in the old days people used to have on their toast Ugh. so I mean that that's you know that's so that's so grim that it's almost comic. But I yeah. thought, well, I can't, you can't use things like that, you know, but also there was um, the whole sort of lunacy and the lunatic asylum uh, research was interesting because even in Victorian times, even breaking social norms could be dangerous, not just committing terrible crimes, but, uh, you know, there, there's a story of a young woman who uh, decided to go and live with her lover without getting married, which so incensed her her family um, that mm-hmm. her father and two brothers I think they captured her and had her locked away in an asylum. Uh, and this was endorsed by a local doctor as well, who said that, um, you know, she was insane, essentially, to to have done this. So to bring shame upon a family was almost as big a crime as as chopping up your mistress and selling her, you know, as dripping. <laughs> so, yeah, really interesting stuff. Um, one of the most unbelievable things was having written the Head in the Ice... Which is about the discovery of a body, a uh, head in the Thames, and they also then discover her body, poor unfortunate woman, further down on the Chelsea Embankment on the River Thames. And having written that book, I then I learned about the Whitehall Mystery. The Whitehall Mystery took place in eighteen eighty eight. Do you know about this? No. Mm-hmm. Well, it's often called the White the Whitehall Murders as well. So, uh, from eighteen eighty eight, for I think about three months, uh, parts of a body were discovered around. Whitehall and the River Thames, and in fact, I think the first there was a right arm and a shoulder that were discovered on the shores of the Thames, uh, and then I think a month later, during construction of New Scotland Yard, that iconic building, there was discovered a parcel containing human remains, uh, a female torso that had been wrapped up. And it was discovered by a worker, and then uh, I think a couple of weeks later. Uh, a left leg was found buried on the construction site of Scotland Yard. And the head and other limbs were never found and the the, the victim's identity was never established. But it just struck me as maybe I did know that and maybe I'd heard it many years ago and it sort of sunk in. And that was why my initial story was about the discovery of a head in the River Thames. Maybe it is based on some sort of truth.
0: Yeah, Victorian true crime is really grim. They're just, I don't know what about the times, but yeah people uh, snapped and snapped in a really well bad way
1: poison think, was often
0: yep. a way to kill people <laughs> and, yeah
1: well it was so it was so easy to get hold of you know we're talking yeah. a time when you know i think queen victoria took um took, was it cocaine or uh you know uh, you know and you could you could any any chemist could get you a, could get you a poison mm-hmm. uh you know th- these things were very often used around the house uh so they were very easy to lay your hands on and i think you know it's a very difficult time for a lot of people and sometimes I suppose when you're desperate the only way out is is to turn to crime and once you're in you're in
2: yeah mm. it's, it's amazing when you think of like the, the the consequences of that because they did still have hanging and like you say you could get mm. sent to the asylum
3: mm-hmm. you know
2: that that's pretty big deterrence to not yes. murder yes. somebody and yes. yet Yeah I've been reading um, a book from the library it's called The Battered Body Beneath the Flagstones and Other Victorian Scandals by uh, Michelle Morgan and I have come to the conclusion that um, Victorians were a little bit they needed the asylum because I think they were a little bit insane (laughs) the the amount of crimes of passion of oh she left me so I, I slit her throat and it's like and you yeah. thought you'd get away with it?
1: Yeah, that's right. And of course the press used to love sensationalizing. Yes. I think, you know, I think uh, nowadays you might buy a newspaper and you might turn to the sports pages or the whatever. But I think in those days you turned to the crime pages first to see what's going on. Yeah, the people of
0: like. that time loved sensational crimes. Yeah. They just went gaga over the most recent craziness. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that was, you know, today we want the celebrity gossip yeah, but back then they just wanted, you know, who murdered who and yeah, the most if salacious murder. Yeah. yeah,
1: that's right. Yeah, finding crazy.
2: Have you come across any like major criminals in in any of your true true kind of crimes that you're looking at, like uh. Jack the Ripper or anything that that just kind of stunned you that this these type of people existed? Like I've got mm. one where these. This woman buried her lover under the under the patio, basically.
1: Right, it, right. Yeah,
2: it's just like, and you thought you'd get away with this?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, I can't remember anything specifically. Uh, yeah, nothing springs to mind. I'm afraid. I mean, there was the uh, the case of, uh, of Spring-Heeled Jack, which I found really fascinating. You heard of Spring-Heeled Jack? Mm-mm. Nope. No, no. Nope. Well, heeled Jack was sort of an, almost a, a mythological character really uh, and in fact he was the inspiration for the for the sort of the evil villain in my final book who I've called Jumping Jack and uh he was called Springhill Jack because he was he uh he could leap tall buildings in one bound uh he could breathe fire and he had eyes that spat uh blue sparks and he had claws on his hands now this sounds incredible doesn't it it sounds amazing <laughs> It sounds fantastical, but there was documented not evidence, should we say, but there were cases involving Spring Jack all the way from I think about 1838 to about 1888. For 50 or 60 years, this character would appear every now and then all over the country, basically uh, terrorizing young women and then disappearing by leaping buildings. And he had the country in his thrall. Again, there were There were questions asked about him in Parliament. Um, There were newspaper articles written about him. And he became a sort of like a boogeyman, like a, a, you know, a a figure to to scare children. Spring-heeled Jack. Uh, So Google him and have a look. He's a fascinating character. It makes you wonder what was going on there. People think, well, maybe because it took place over such a long period of time, perhaps it was, you know, successive people. Who who sort of took on this mantle for a laugh? Maybe it was students messing around, or you know, we still to this day we don't know. So not a terrible villain in that. I don't. I think he may have been responsible for one or two people dying of shock, uh, but you know he didn't cut them up and put them under the patio. But certainly an interesting character.
3: I'll definitely look him up. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I think you kind of answered the next questions. Mm-hmm. Do you ever use uh true crimes that you read about in your stories? Yeah. Um, maybe not only Victorian true crime crimes but something that maybe happens today. And do you use them in in some ways for your for the basis of your books?
1: Mm. Uh I like I said before I can't think of a of a particular instance where I've read of a of a crime thought I'm going to use that. Uh I did a bit of reading again for the fourth book and I've mentioned this sort of the bank fraud. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I did a bit of reading about sort of pyramid schemes and Ponzi schemes and so on, which is essentially what this what this was in, in the final book. And for the third book, I, I looked into sort of masonry, which is a, uh, a secret society here in the UK, which has its roots in, uh, gosh, sort of medieval England, really, uh, because I wanted there to be a small rural community that uh, was very insular and there was sort of a secret society at its heart uh, that Bowman needed to, to infiltrate. And, and again, for the second book, uh, I was really interested in a in the myth. The second book is set around the, the, the docks of, of London. Uh, and there's this great um, street just near St. Saviour's Dock on the South Bank opposite Tower Bridge called Neckinger. N-E-C-K-I-N-G-E-R. Neckinger. And the reason it's called Neckinger is because they used to hang uh, the pirates on, on the gallows of this dock and it was said that the devil would come and take his neckerchief from his neck mm. to mop up the blood uh, and i found that really interesting i love this idea again with spring hill jack of playing with mythology and somehow making it um coherent in our in our real world you know what 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 exactly happened on the docks that that this legend came about wow that's cool hmm. <laughs>
0: You said with historical fiction, you like to imagine yourself back there and you like to dress up in period Mm. costume. When you're writing, do you imagine actors or any friends in the place of characters? Or do you imagine a completely different person? Or do you put yourself in the character roles? Uh,
1: a A mixture, a mixture, really. I mean, obviously, I'm George Bowman. Of course I am. <laughs> of course I am. Why would I write yes. a lead role in a book and it not be me? Although I did make the mistake of making him 10 years younger than me, which is a bit of a shame. Um, but yes, uh, very often you may see occasionally I, I, I tweet uh, about my Bowman of the Art books and occasionally I tweet uh, some line drawings of some of the characters in the books of a very good artist called Lee Sullivan did for me a couple of years ago. And when I emailed him and asked him if he, if he wouldn't mind doing that, I did actually send him some sort of um, uh, ideas of names uh, that uh, you know he he should Google as a kind of inspiration for the the physical characteristics of these characters. So uh, uh, yeah, George Bowman is a cross between me and an actor called Kieran Hines that you, you oh yeah yeah, of, yeah. Um, uh, it, uh Inspector Hicks is sort of this this bluff uh, blustering larger than life character, and in my mind he's always been Brian Blessed, who is a, an actor you might mm-hmm. have heard of who's a very loud ebullient character mm-hmm. um and uh, in fact sergeant graves is is uh who's bowman's sort of sidekick is is based on uh, an old drama school contemporary of mine called raymond uh, raymond Coulthard. um but yes very often um i think of other actors uh so the there's a, a character called dr henderson in the head in the ice and i always imagined that might be played by john thor if ever it, it were to be made into a, into a series who famously played inspector morse Um yeah. so I do tend, I suppose, to reach for actors I know or I've worked with or friends. Uh, or sometimes I like to sort of start from scratch. In one of the short stories, uh, it's the Hackney Poisoning, I think. Uh, I spent a couple of pages describing this uh, character who, who, uh, who, who is a great traveler of the world. And so I thought it'd be rather fun to describe his face in terms of a map. So he had the great plane of his forehead. And the, the veins in his eyes are like the tributaries of a river. And, and the, the, these sideboards are like, you know, the, the forest on a, on, a, on a hill or something. So uh, sometimes I like to build a character from scratch and make them really something original.
2: One of the things that I really have liked about reading Head in the Ice, because I've started that one and I'm about mm. a third of the way through, mm-hmm. is just how descriptive you are when you're describing your places, like you say you're yeah. kind of you really do feel like you're in a bit of a dark alley alley in yeah. places and you know how, how do you visualize that is that just like a picture in your mind or is kind of going around London and looking at places and trying to think of what it would be like back then
1: mm.
0: or is
2: it like pictures that you found on the internet that have given you great ideas and how to kind yeah. of describe these places
1: uh, all those things it's all of those things uh in the fourth book um there's an interesting sort of archway that I've found did I find a picture of it first that leads from a street where a certain action is taking place down the steps directly onto the River Thames but from from the street side that archway looks beautifully ornate and the houses are lovely so it's obviously very genteel and Mm -hmm. it's made to it's been built to be a rather nice uh, sort of view as you're looking out of your rather expensive townhouse but from the other side from the river side of course it's just a hole in the wall with some steps leading up to it (laughs) I thought that was quite interesting. So, you know, I might find a location and think, ah, oh, that would be an interesting place. I think in this case, for because we flash back in the final book, I don't want to give too much away, but we do actually see a younger Inspector Bowman when he first meets his wife. And that's where she lives, I think. So sometimes I'm inspired by a location and think, what could I write here? Well, sometimes I write something and think, this needs a location. So there's a final battle between uh, Bowman and, and the villain in The Head in the Ice, uh, and it could only for me take place in one place i'm not going to say where it is but i knew it had to take place there so that meant i then had to do a bit of research about exactly what that place would have looked like in 1892 and make it as authentic as possible i think i mean i am i i think i think it's possible to say i'm sometimes overly descriptive but actually a lot of writing is about Finding your own voice in other way, in other words, not doing it the way someone else would do it, or not doing it the way you think it should be done, but doing it the way you feel it should be done, and being true to yourself, so I sort of went with it really, and thought well if i 'm enjoying this, maybe there 's a chance the reader will too.
2: Totally. It definitely kind of draws you in. There are Mm. times that I'm like, I don't know if I want to go on this. It's
1: getting a bit scary
2: and then you just kind of have to keep going.
1: Yes. Well, hopefully in those times, certainly in the other books, maybe the head in the ice is a bit dark, but uh, (laughs) uh, sometimes I try and sort of lighten it with a bit of humour, a bit of a twinkle in the eye. So it's not all all doom and gloom.
3: You recently mentioned on Twitter, because we all follow you on Twitter, Ah. (laughs) that you had written your protagonist, into a corner and you didn't know how to get them out of the situation you created. Um, How do you go about fixing those moments? And do you secretly love like solving these puzzles, solving a way out for your character?
1: No, no, I hate it. I hate it. (laughs) I tell you, I love it when it's fixed. I love it when you come up with with a solution you go, yeah, ah, there we are. That's it. But I hate it when you get to that seemingly a dead end. Yes, this is a book I'm writing at the moment. It's one of my science fiction novels, and uh, I put like I said in a tweet, I'd put my main characters into this particular predicament in fact, they were about to be um, they'd all been captured and tied up and they were about to be shot by a row a row of archers with their bows and arrows pointing at them and I suddenly thought, oh, okay, what now? what's going to stop this happening? What on earth can I do and in that particular instance, I sort of thought well i'll I'll stop it there. I think i you know I'd had a good day's writing I thought i'm just going to walk away, forget about it, just leave it, go to bed, sleep on it, see if anything comes to me. And you know, it did. Yeah. That's a strange thing. I think the mind is a wonderful thing, isn't it? But sometimes if you, if you focus in on something too much and study it too much, you become so enwrapped in it, that you can't see a way out. But the minute you put it to one side and almost kind of as if you're looking at it through the corner of your eye, sometimes the solution just kind of presents itself to you and it of course once you've got it it's obvious so I found the way out it just meant a slight rejiggling, introducing something a page earlier which I could then use to prevent <laughs> them being shot that's all it takes and of course as writers we're editors we can change things whenever we want you know if a character is says something and then three pages later he's he's dead and you might think ah actually wouldn't it be good if he was dead because of that thing he said three pages ago so let's just go back. what what could he have said there? I know. And you might change what he said to make sense of his eventual fate. You know, we're doing that all the time. That's a great thing. With life, you can't change. You can't change what's come before, can you? Yeah. But as a writer, I can undo all my mistakes.
3: It would be so cool if you could. Wouldn't it? Yeah, just yeah. rewrite life. <laughs> That's
1: right. Exactly.
3: <laughs> There's that God complex. <laughs>
1: the God complex. That's exactly it. I think every writer has that. <laughs>
2: Uh, speaking of the god complex um, one, of the, <laughs> one of the things which I, I was quite interested and in, kind of enthralled me is the fact that quite early in Head in the Ice mm-hmm. you, you write this whole chapter on this very lovely character and mm-hmm. I was like oh, quite like him I wonder how he's gonna oh you've killed him off okay ah. oh yes and and I was like I don't trust you anymore <laughs> Yes, that's right. <laughs> I'm like yes. if you're yeah. gonna do this to this seemingly nice person what <laughs> are you gonna do um, do you ever feel guilty for, for killing off any of your characters or the, perhaps even the way you've killed them off because I like the way you kind of introduce a bad person and then you introduce somebody even worse <laughs> yeah,
1: that's right up in the ante all the yeah. time uh, no i don't feel guilty i love it, I, love it. <laughs> I think i know do you mean joseph morley
2: is, yes. he, is he the one
1: that di- yes again i wouldn't give too much away but uh, okay. yeah uh yeah no I, I i quite like that uncertainty i mean again yeah. life's a bit like that isn't it? i mean hopefully you know, no one we know is going to be horribly murdered in a dark alley tonight but uh, when you're reading a book i love that feeling of jeopardy and digging- is this character going to survive?
2: Yeah.
1: You definitely
2: hit the nail with that one. Yeah.
1: Is he going to become a main character throughout the rest of the... Oh, he's gone.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) But, uh, you see, I think that comes from some of my experience as an actor, obviously, is is playing sometimes smaller roles than we would like. But that doesn't mean to say those smaller roles are any the less important to the story or uh, to the scene. Uh, As an actor, you've still got to flesh out your character and bring it to life. You can't just say, oh, I've only got two lines, it doesn't matter if you take that attitude you'll stick out like a sore thumb in the scene so you still have to put in the work and think okay what is this character what sort of life has he led what's brought him here what does he want that kind of thing and it makes for a much richer performance and likewise as a writer you know that particular character yeah he's only in the first chapter so I could have just sketched him in but I sort of wanted a bit more than that I wanted a real person and if he's a real person we'll we'll empathize with him a bit more and we'll we'll miss him when he's gone or we'll think back to you know when he was alive or we might even imagine the life that he led or the life that he might have gone on to lead. So I do like taking smaller characters and, <laughs> and, and treating them, actually, as if they are the main character, as they are in that moment in the whole book.
2: I I, I definitely, as a reader, really enjoyed that. And it mm. definitely brought the secondary character in that part yes. to life a bit more. And- yeah. You know. because,
1: because suddenly, this other character is killing a real person, isn't he? Yeah. Not just this little two-dimensional character's created, but someone that you feel you know a little bit, and that perhaps is all the more shocking.
2: Yes, it was yeah. definitely one of those. I went, like, "Oh, if you're going to well, do that to him, what else? yes." <laughs> all,
1: well, I all, hate to, all bets uh, are off. I hate to break it to you, but there's more coming. Yeah. <laughs> so, just just be careful.
3: I am. Don't read it these before books. bedtime. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's kind of the story of my fan life that i i seem to fall in love a lot with um like secondary characters Uh, really and then they're the first to get killed off and i'm like yeah so Uh, it it, i always feel like i'm a curse to my favorite characters because the ones i like they're always the first to die yes (laughs) that's
1: a shame isn't it yeah it's so cruel
0: (laughs) it is
3: it's a cruel world yeah
0: cruel cruel world so with all your his, um, Victorian historical research, did that help or hinder when you came into the world of Miss Scarlet and the Duke?
1: Ah, well, of course, the great thing is that uh, the work's been done for me, isn't it? You know, Rachel's done all the work, really. That was so lovely, being presented with the, you know, these scenes to play in this fully fleshed out world. Uh, I just had to sort of learn the lines and not bump into the furniture. As they say, you know. <laughs> uh, but also, I suppose it helped in that... Well, I don't know. I mean, any actor, I suppose, and even, you know, if you're not an actor, some people find it quite easy to immerse themselves into sort of an imaginary world. And you can imagine being in this particular society and playing this particular type of role. And you can imagine how they might walk and how they might talk and how they might hold themselves when they're not walking or talking. Things like that. Um, and, and I think in this sort of, you know, like the Victorian world that, that Rachel's created, and the characters she's created and the particular part that I play uh, seemed to come quite easily to me. I sort of thought, I, I think I know what's needed here. And, uh, you know, the director, Steve Hughes, is able to sort of point me in certain directions or tell me when to not, not do quite so much or to do a bit more, you know. Uh, so it was a really great experience. And I think I tweeted at the time that, uh, you know, after writing about the Victorian uh, Scotland Yard drama, it was quite nice to appear in one. And uh, it really was. It was lovely.
3: And we look forward to seeing you. Mm, yes. yes, we do. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs>
3: we always ask uh, our fellow scholars if they have any questions for the podcast, for our guest or ah. about the topic that we have, which is sometimes a bit tricky because we don't want to give away if we have a guest and who the guest is. I see. So <laughs> yes, yes. we had to tweak some of the fan questions to fit to you <laughs> because that was the big surprise. Understood But... The first question is from me, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you <clears throat> mentioned on your website that you have your own home studio where you record audio dramas, and mm-hmm. um, there is an audiobook version for Andy's Android. Yes, and I was wondering when we can expect the Bowman of the Yard series to become audiobooks as well, because yeah. I like them. I love yes. audiobooks.
1: That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So w- when we sort of um, went into our first uh, lockdown in, uh, 2020, gosh, a couple of years ago, just about, mm-hmm. um, after a few months, you know, obviously cause work dried up for me, uh, no one was performing my plays and no one was making any TV or theater. So there wasn't very much if you're an actual writer, uh, to, to do, but I, I soon discovered that actually what was thriving in those strange times was, uh, audio drama. So I actually invested in a little mic and, uh, we had just moved into a new house just before lockdown. We just got in, and in the, uh, in our garage, there's there's like an airing cupboard, a strange cupboard in the corner that's just big enough for a table and a little laptop and a mic. And I realised if I put some sort of soundproofing foam uh, around the place, I could uh, I could make a little home recording studio. And so from there, I've been doing various uh, audio dramas for for various companies. Yeah, I'm often asked about the the Bowman books as audio books. I've certainly got the kit to do it the trouble is do I have do I have the inclination because I think it's quite an attractive idea for the author to read their own books I think people would like that and obviously if the author is an actor that that certainly helps but to record 4 70,000 word novels and 8 13,000 word novels is probably a good 6 to 8 to 9 or 10 weeks pretty solid recording
3: so could I do that
1: probably am I going to do it possibly
3: oh I look forward to it because again during lockdown I became a huge fan of audiobooks and I've I've realized that I I lost a little bit the attention span to read a book Mm -hmm. so that's at the moment quite difficult for me but I can listen to it so yeah. yeah I look forward to any audiobooks from you'll you.
1: Be the, you'll be the first to know.
3: Yay! Woo-hoo. We'll send you some throat lo- lozenges. <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
0: perfect. Yes,
1: yeah, exactly.
0: Callie has a question mm-hmm. Have you come across any information about what sort of official training a Scotland Yard officer would get during the time?
1: Yes, um, very little, it seems, actually. Uh, yeah. I mean, Scotland Yard, you know, I think the Met Metropolitan Police was founded in 1829, I think. So by the time we get to the Bowman series and uh, Miss Scarlett and the Duke, uh, it's been around, uh, you know, 40, 50 years. But even then there wasn't, I don't think, much formal training. There were, I think, exams, but really it was about your aptitude, your ability to do the job. I think a lot of the training took place on the job as it were i think there was a very there was a very clearly defined uh ranking system that you could work your way up through i think there's there was a phrase uh that police officers were promised that uh, when ability as an officer is displayed it will lead to notice and advancement so i think that's the premise they worked on if you show promise as a young police constable you could advance through the ranks to you know sergeant and detective inspector and chief inspector and superintendent and then beyond that you know into retirement with a very healthy um pension now we're talking of a time when uh a job for life uh was was a precious thing and a well-paid job i mean not not hugely well paid but a, a solid wage every week or month uh was a very attractive thing uh and also uh, scotland yard was very keen on on getting recruits in the early days, you were quite likely to go in, at I think, at quite a high rank because they just needed men. Um, so they were very keen to retain their recruits. So they had this very clear career path, which if you showed aptitude and willing, you could make your way through. And of course, there was financial stability throughout all of that, which must have been very attractive. But as to formal training, I don't think they were given very much until quite late on. Into the 20th century, I think, I don't know, 1920s or 30s, I don't know, perhaps around there, suddenly we get more formal requirements, entry requirements and exams and training and so on. Um, because you have to remember in the early days that the police force grew out of a volunteer force, really. I think it was called the KIN force, K-I-N, was the mm. precursor to the to police force, which I think were essentially a, a vigilante groups of, of of men who would you know, take the law into their own hands. And then that became formalized by, by Robert Peel in, in the eighteen eighteen twenties. But it still had that sort of volunteer kind of thing about it. You know, no formal training was was required.
0: Okay. In your books there's a scene of an autopsy. Mm. Diana wants to know what was the view on autopsies or dissections in Victorian times? Were they illegal oh. or lar- <clears throat> largely accepted?
1: Uh, no, they weren't illegal. I think um, there was the Anatomy Act of uh, 1830, I think 1832, which sort of um, enabled all the bodies, unclaimed bodies, really, from poor houses and workhouses, charitable hospitals, so on and so on, they could then go to dissection. So if a body wasn't claimed, it could go to be dissected, which meant that, you know, we all know these stories of Burke and Hare and the grave robbers uh from the early 19th century it meant that their trade was was gone at a stroke because there was now a ready supply of bodies rightly or wrongly from the poorer well wrongly not rightly about <laughs> yes. it from the sort of poorer end the poorer spectrum of, of society there's a there's some bartholomew one of the hospitals in london they have records that show that prostitutes and servants and the dispossessed living in overcrowded lodging houses uh, were the staple of the dissection room. And between, I think it was uh, for about 100 years, between the 1830s and 1930s, they accounted for over 6,000 dissected bodies.
0: Oh, wow.
1: wow. So that's where they were getting them from. And there was nothing illegal about that. If it it was an unclaimed body, it could be sent for dissection. And in many ways, we should be grateful for that because that's where many of the medical advances of the Victorian age and on uh, came from. So we're sort of the beneficiaries of that in a way.
0: So it was more of just learning about the body as opposed to learning why people died.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I think though, you know, we're beyond the age of enlightenment, aren't we, in, in Victorian times? So I think there was a, 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 a quite a growing understanding of, of the causes of death. Um, you know, I think we would perhaps see a lot of our modern medicine has its its roots in in Victorian medicine, where they were able to study the causes of death in, in greater detail close up in a in a in a theatre and, and of course you know the victorian times is where, is where we have these great operating theatres and they were called theatres because that's exactly what they were you could go along as a medical student or perhaps even as a member of the public i'm sure and watch a dissection taking place it was a theatre and that's why we call them operating theatres mm.
2: Um, so this question comes from Trina and um, she's been reading about uh, detectives in Scotland Yard and she mm. said that she thought it took a long time to make um, detective in Victorian times mm. and we just wondered whether you'd got any insight from writing about Detective Bowman in Scotland Yard what that life would have been like for back then.
1: Um, yeah I, I think I think it would have been a very different life actually to the one you see on screen in Miss Scarlett and the Duke and the ones you would read about in my books. I think it was a very hard life, actually. I think they worked six day weeks fifty two weeks of the year, very long hours. I think there's a phrase about officers having to perform the grinding, continuous duty of seven days a week fifty two weeks a year they would uh, sometimes required to travel abroad to to find the answers and seek out the the fugitives or to escort prisoners back to England, you know, this is before four airplanes. So that would be a long train and boat journey of many days. Uh, They had to contend with people's opinion of them as well. You know, these days it's encouraged that we look at the police force with with respect. Uh, But I think in the, certainly the early days of the Metropolitan Police in London and Scotland Yard, I think they were, they were viewed with more than a little suspicion. There's a great book, and I can't remember who wrote it, but it's called The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher. And okay. it's about a Scotland Yard detective. It's a true story based on a true case. And it's about a Scotland Yard detective who goes to investigate uh, a death, a murder in, in the countryside, in a big country house. I mean, it sounds like a fiction, but it's, it's all true. And actually, the, the attitude of the locals is really interesting. Because the detective is seen not as a saviour who's coming to solve the crime and catch the culprit, but as a busybody, someone sticking their nose into affairs that that don't don't concern them. So there was a great suspicion from the public uh, towards Scotland Yard and these meddling busybodies who made it their business to stick their nose into your business. And on top of that, you had quite a hostile press, and this features is quite heavily in the head in the ice as well, with the Evening Standard, mm-hmm. uh, following George Bowman on his, uh, on his case. Quite a hostile press who were very keen to point out every shortcoming and every failure uh, of, of Scotland Yard during the time. And I think there was even a, a trial, the turf fraud scandal in the 1870s, which mm-hmm. brought to light this whole kind of corruption uh, scandal in Scotland Yard, which, again, really knocked people's confidence so I think it was quite a difficult life being a detective, both in terms of the hard work that you had to do, but also in terms of your your social standing. You know, being a detective now, I think, is very different to how it was 130, 140 years ago.
3: Mm-hmm. Wow. That's interesting. Mm. I could listen to you talk about (laughs) Victorian crimes and and your writing for for ages. (laughs) Me Um, too. Mm -hmm. Which is probably good if you ever do these audiobooks because then I will listen to them. (laughs) But But sadly, we're slowly coming to the end of our podcast and the end of our questions, Mm. but we still have like our commercial break <laughs> where we um, talk about where you can find us. Uh, Scarlet Tears is on Facebook, on Twitter and Instagram. You just look for Scarlet Tears and you find our page and group. And um, we also have a website, scarlettears.wordpress.com. And, um, of course, the Scarlet Tears podcast, um, has, um, its own Facebook page as well.
2: Richard, whereabouts can we find your work and your books and uh, as much information about your good self as ah. our wonderful Tears like?
1: Uh, well, you can, uh, you can find me on Twitter. I spend too much time on Twitter and I'm uh, at Richard N. James. That's N for nothing, at Richard N. <laughs> James on Twitter. Uh, if you want to find out more about Bowman of the Yard, I think uh, probably, well, there are two ways of going about it. You can simply Google uh, Bowman of the Yard as B-O-W-M-A-N, Bowman of the Yard, and uh, you'll get through to the books uh, probably on Amazon, I would think. Um, or you can uh, go to my website, which is richardjamesonline.com. That's all one word, richardjamesonline.com, and just follow the links to my author pages or my playwright pages or acting pages, voice pages, whatever you're interested in. A
0: lot of pages on there. <laughs> well, Richard, it was really wonderful having you on the podcast. Like. Isabel said we could just listen to you for days talking (laughs) about your books true crime whatever you want to talk about because you're
1: fascinating well that's very kind
0: in all you do thank you everybody for listening thank you richard for coming next podcast we'll be talking about some of our favorite minor but important characters in season one so everybody tune in next time Thank you, everybody, for listening to the Scarlet Tears podcast. Music by Kevin MacLeod. Incomentech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by attribute 4.0, license, HTTP colon forward slash forward slash creativecommons.org forward slash licenses forward slash by forward slash 4.0 forward slash.